Hey, we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 25. As we scan the book more than anything, Jesus, I thank you for this man who endured an exile, loss of status, loss of position, loss of job, living in a refugee camp next to a sewage canal outside of Babylon. And yet he was so resilient. I pray for the church in Grant's Pass in Oregon, in America, Lord, I pray that we would be resilient. The book of Proverbs says that a righteous man will fall down seven times, but he'll get back up. I pray that the church in 2017 would not be caught up in being relevant or cool, but we would be resilient, like Ezekiel, that no matter what happens to us, our trust, our obedience, our faithfulness increases. So even tonight, Lord, as we read and study, I pray that you would create in us the character that is resilient, that's able to charge ahead into this new year with trust and expectancy because you're a good and generous God who has good works that you've prepared in advance for us to walk in them, that you want us to run with horses. So empower and enable us, even tonight we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Ezekiel 25, uh, here's what's happened so far in this book. Chapter one, God shows up to Ezekiel in a refugee camp next to a sewage canal outside of the most wicked city that the Bible ever talks about, Babylon. And there should be a big question like, what is God doing here? And from chapter one through chapter 11, you get the answer. God takes Ezekiel back to, ba to Jerusalem, shows him the sins and the junk in the temple. And as God's showing him that, you see this slow movement of God out of the Holy of Holies into the holy place, across the threshold of the temple, and then God exits on his Godmobile out through the eastern gate and heads to Babylon. Because God wants to be with his people no matter where we are. So that's chapters one through 11, God is gone. And then chapters 12 through 24, in that vacuum comes judgment. God leaves and then inflows that into that vacuum now, the judgment upon Jerusalem. And we looked at that section the last two Wednesdays. So God judges his people in Jerusalem. Now in chapters 25 through 32, what we'll cover tonight, here's what happens. God now looks out at the seven nations that surround Israel and judgment falls on those nations. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, Verse 17, he says, judgment begins at the house of the Lord. So God now has judged his people, but the nations around Israel are also full of sin. So God begins in these chapters, chapters 25 through 32, to pronounce judgment on the seven nations that surround Israel. Now, there's a big question. Why does God tell a ragtag group of exiles living in a refugee camp that he's going to judge these nations that are hundreds and thousands of miles away. Why does it matter to them? These nations will never read the prophecies. So what is the deal here? Sometimes we do similar things like that. You ever have a conversation with somebody that you really want someone else to overhear? You ever do that? Yeah, like, man... I hope that Phil starts treating his wife a little bit better. Right. I hope he pays me back my 20 bucks. You ever pray that way? You ever pray a sermon? Jesus, I'm just so thankful that you are so generous and that you have given us mansions in heaven. I just pray Bill over here would give me a right of way through his property. 
right? We do stuff just like that. So is that what's happening? I don't think so. And I'll fill in at the end of this why I believe God details through a lot of work what's going to happen to these other nations, right? So this section, 25 through 32, really breaks into two parts. 25 through 28, I call it delighting in destruction. So you have these nations that actually look at Israel when Israel gets judged and they're super happy. They're stoked on that. They delight in the destruction of Israel. Sometimes I can fall into that trap. I remember a very pivotal moment in my own walk happened back, oh, I think it was 1998, when Bill Clinton was caught up in the Monica Lewinsky scandal, remember that? Well, where I was at back at that time, I was like, right on. The Lion King is getting busted. And so there was kind of this glee about it, like, yeah, impeach him, come on, do it. I was gleeful until I watched a news report and it was of the helicopter, Air Force One helicopter landing on the White House lawn, out hops Hillary out of one side and Bill Clinton out of the other side and they start walking and you can tell they don't wanna be around each other. And then out hops a very young Chelsea Clinton. And she walked out and she catches up to her dad and she grabs her dad's hand, pulls him over and grabs her mom's hand and pulls her over. And right then my heart broke. Because while I was gleeful about Bill Clinton getting busted, I forgot that a dad's sin is like a hand grenade in his family. And here is this young girl who's having to deal with this in the public spotlight and it broke my heart. Because I should know my dad's sin was a hand grenade in my life. It changed how I view other people. And I think that's what this is supposed to do to us, that you're not to have glee over another person's sin. So that's chapters 25 through 28. Chapters 29 all the way through 32 deals with one nation, Egypt. Why Egypt? Because Egypt for millennia had been untouched. The pharaohs down there were seen as gods. It was like they were the untouchable ones. And so God finally says, time's up. Your time is up. You're going to be touched now. You're going to be torched, in fact. All right, so that's the two sections. We'll jump in, chapter 25. The word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, set your face toward the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of Yahweh God. Thus says Yahweh God, because you said, aha, over my sanctuary when it was profaned and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate and over the house of Judah when they went into exile. Therefore, behold, I am handing you over to the people of the east. Verse six. For thus says Yahweh God, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the malice within your soul against the land of Israel, Therefore, behold, I have stretched out my hand against you and will hand you over as plunder to the nations and I will cut you off from the peoples and will make you perish out of the countries. I will destroy you. And then you will know that I am, the, I am Yahweh. Here's what we know about Ammon and all these nations that we're gonna talk about in this first section. Jeremiah 27 tells us that they had all become allies to actually try to thwart off an attack from Babylon. So they're supposed to be buddies. But if you remember back to last week, when Nebuchadnezzar comes and he's trying to decide which place should I attack? And he shakes the arrows and he looks at a teraphim and he divines a liver and he does all these kind of pagan things to figure out which direction to take. And God says, I'm gonna control that. And I'm gonna make sure he doesn't go to these other nations. I'm gonna make sure that he goes to Jerusalem and destroys Jerusalem. Well, when that happens, the allies don't show up. In fact, they're gleeful. The Germans have a word for this. It's called schadenfreude. Have you heard of that before? It literally means harm, joy. It's a joy you get when someone else has harm or some other organization goes down. 
We would call it gloating. Anyone ever do that? I'm guilty as charged. Guilty, guilty, guilty. This year with duck football, there was gloating. I'll admit it, <laughs> right? There was some gloating going on with me. Ammon is actually one of the nations that's related to Israel. If anyone, they're not only an ally, but they're a relative. Abraham, the great-grandfather of Jacob, the grandfather of Jacob, uh, he had a nephew named Lot who, because of some bad circumstances, impregnates his daughter. You can read about that if you want. I wouldn't recommend it. And she gives birth to the Ammonites. So they're actually related. Same with the next crew, the Moabites, verse 8. Thus says Yahweh God. Because Moab and Seir, that's Mount, said, Behold, the house of Judah is like all other nations. Therefore, I will lay open the flank of Moab. Verse 11, I will execute judgments upon Moab. They will know that I am Yahweh. So Moab is the other daughter who also have relations with Lot and produces the Moabites. Both of them are family. And the Moabites said this. They didn't clap and stamp or rejoice. They said, we know it. Your God isn't special. You're not the chosen people. You're just like everyone else. God is not great. And the third nation is Edom. Verse 12. Thus says Yahweh God. Because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them. Therefore, thus says Yahweh God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut them off. Edom does something even different than the Ammonites and the Moabites. In the book of Obadiah, here's what you find. When Nebuchadnezzar finally, after a siege, starves out Jerusalem, breaks the walls, all of a sudden people start to escape out of whatever channel they can. Guess what the Edomites did? They stood around, captured the escapees, took them, and then turned them over to Nebuchadnezzar. Brutal. The Edomites were even closer relatives of Israel. Remember, Jacob becomes Israel. He had a twin brother named Esau, which means hairy, okay? When he came out of the womb, they called him Sasquatch. And he was an outdoor dude. He was a tough guy, right? Hunted, fished. He would eat hamburger helper out of a big aluminum pot with a wooden spoon. He's that guy. Jacob, totally different. He goes to art school in New York, culinary school in San Francisco. He uses Grey Poupon. He's that dude. Well, Jacob wants Esau's first position. And so he lies and steals the blessing from his dad. Esau says, I'm going to kill you. Well, that starts out a 1,500-year bitter war between the Edomites and the Israelites. They never forgive each other. In fact, when Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, he asks the Edomites, hey, can we please pass through your land? We won't do anything. We won't touch anything. We won't even drink any of your water. And they say, no way. You set a foot in our land and we will wipe you out. So the Edomites, terrible, rounding up the escapees, turning them over to Nebuchadnezzar. The Philistines, verse 15 tells us, did the exact same thing. Thus says Yahweh God, because the Philistines acted revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy in never-ending enmity. You guys are just, not, you are our forever enemy. The same thing's gonna happen to you. So these nations, their problem was they were gleeful or vengeful, right? The next nation, Tyre. Tyre takes chapter 26, 27, and 28. And here's what we learn about Tyre. Tyre is the shipping power of the ancient world. There was these trade routes that they were hyper important if you want to be successful. Three very important trade routes went through Israel. There was the coastal route. There was what's called the ridge route, which ran right through Jerusalem. And then the Great Rift Valley was a route that you could get goods. And it, the goods from Africa from Saudi Arabia, that peninsula, all funneled through one of these three routes and then up to places like Tyre or up into Europe. Massively, massively important routes. It would be like Interstate 5. If Interstate 5 was moved 
from here to like Klamath Falls, what happens to Grants Pass? We become Selma. Well, that'd be awesome. There's no traffic. Yeah, there'd be no jobs. The housing market would crash, right? How many people have moved to Grants Pass? Like I talked to you, why'd you move to Grants Pass? You know, I was driving the Interstate 5. I had to pull over to get gas for the first time out of California. And I, and I couldn't pump my own gas. I was there forever waiting for someone to pump my gas. So I just decided to move here, right? How many people you talk to you like, it just was on Interstate 5 and I thought I'd move here. Like we'd have half the population. It's that important. So these routes were controlled by Israel for a long time and they would extract money from people coming through. Well, Tyre is like, aha, look what we have now. Look at what happens. Verse one, in the 11th year, on the first day of the month, uh, Ezekiel is very good with dates. He's like maybe slightly OCD. The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, aha, the gate of the peoples is broken. It has swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. What did, what did Tyre just say there? We're going to get rich. We're going to control these routes now. We're the, it just, Tyre is just barely north of Israel. Now the gate has opened to us. We're going to make a killing now. So God says this. Therefore, thus says Yahweh God, behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. And I will scrape her soil from her and make her a flat rock. So Tyre is going to become flat Tyre. I know, it's cheesy, but that's really what's going to happen. You can read history. It actually happens. So Tyre is, is saying this, I'm going to make money off of Israel's misfortune. And God says, verse 7, wrong answer. Thus says Yahweh God, behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots and with horsemen and a host of many soldiers. He will kill with the sword your daughters on the mainland. He will set up a siege wall against you and throw up a mound against you and raise a roof of shields against you. He will direct the shock of his battering rams against your walls and with his axes, he will break down your towers. Verse 19. Thus says Yahweh God, when I make you a city laid waste like the cities that are not inhabited, when I bring up the deep cover over you and the great waters cover you, then I will make you go down with those who go down to the pit, to the people of old. I will make you to dwell in the world below, among ruins from old, with those who go down to the pit, so that you will not be inhabited, but I'll set beauty in the land of the living. God says, uh-uh. Because you are gleeful over my people, thinking we're going to make money off of this now, now we're going to make more money, God says, wrong answer. And then in chapter 27... It's an entire chapter comparing like a poem saying Tyre is like a ship. I'll read it, some of it for you. The word of Yahweh came to me. Now you son of man, raise a lamentation over Tyre and say to Tyre who dwells at the entrances to the sea, merchants of the people to many coastlands. Thus says Yahweh God, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the heart of the seas. Your builders made perfect your beauty. They made all your planks of fir trees from Sinair. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. Of oaks of Bashan, they made your oars. They made your decks of pines from the coast of Cyprus, inlaid with ivory. Of fine embroidered linen from Egypt was your sail, serving as your banner. Blue and purple from the coast of Elisha was your awning. Verse eight is interesting. The inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your rowers. Your skillful men, O Tyre, were in you. They were your pilots. What'd they do here? They were the white collar dudes and they grabbed grunt workers from other cities, right? We're the pilots. You guys are the rowers. Interesting. Like they held people down. So it details, this chapter details trade. They did tons of trade with Syria, wheat, Damascus, just it was, it just read it. It's amazing. Um, 
History says, verse 12 says, that they did business with Tarsus. Tarsus, according to history, was either Spain or England. So they are able to ship things all the way across the Mediterranean, quite possibly out into the Atlantic to places like England. They're unbelievable with just wooden ships, sailing ships. They're, they're phenomenal. But God says this, verse 34. Now you are wrecked by the seas in the depths of the water. Your merchandise and all your crew in your midst have sunk with you. You're going down because you said, I'm going to make money off of Israel's misfortune. Be careful of that. That tendency is in all of us, is it not? An employee, a co-worker of yours makes a mistake, loses out on a promotion. What do you think? Hey, opportunity for me. I'm going to make money off this misfortune. A home goes into foreclosure because a, a neighbor loses his job, whatever. Hey, I might be able to buy that house. We got to be very careful. These same, same tendencies that are in all of us. The Bible says this. The Bible says that you and I, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, when we have love, it does not rejoice in evil or wrongdoing. That's, we're never to get glee over another person's mistake or trouble. The New York Times has this great article on schadenfreude. And in it, they found this. People that have that gleefulness very often have very low self-esteem, that they go hand in hand. I thought, well, the beaver's losing for 10 years in a row. Okay, I had low self-esteem, sure. That it's, it's not the problem out there, the problem right here, it's, right, it's me, I'm the problem. So I gotta be very careful of those tendencies in me. If I start seeing that, rejoicing over evil, or gleeful in those things, I gotta repent and say, God, I don't wanna be that kind of person. Don't make me that kind of, change me. Make me the kind of person that never rejoices in someone else's misfortune. Chapter 28 is very interesting for a couple reasons, and I'll show you why. The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, this is the king, thus says Yahweh God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods and the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasures. So now this, this prophecy is about the king of Tyre. Hey, this is what you, you think you're a God, you're not a God, but it shifts. And for the sake of time, look at verse 11. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation. Now it uses the word king before it uses the word prince. So it was the prince of Tyre. Now it's the king of Tyre. And say to him, thus says Yahweh God. Listen to this description. You were the signet of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. By the way, those are nine of the 12 stones that would be on the breastplate of the priest as he would intercede for the people. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Very often in the Bible, the holy mountain of God speaks of Israel, Mount Zion. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways, from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Notice there's a bit of a switch. First one is, hey, you're not a God, you're not these things. And then all of a sudden, it changes from the Hebrew word for prince to the word melech or king, 
and gives a description that is like, huh, who is this person? Is this still just the king or is it somebody else? Some commentators say that in verse 13, it switches to describing Lucifer. So is it Lucifer or the king? I say it's both. That throughout history, I think you can look that there are these megalomaniacs that are actually inspired or almost consumed by Satan himself. Caesar Nero is a good example where he would dip Christians in oil and then set them fire on fire in his gardens and shriek around saying, you are the light of the world. Hitler, with the destruction of six million Jews and millions and millions of other people that he deemed no good. Pol Pot, with the ethnic cleansing that took place in Cambodia. Stalin, right? First John 3 says this, that Cain, the guy that killed Abel, was of the evil one. Does that mean he was born of Satan? No, we know his mom was Eve and his dad was Adam. But something happened in Cain where he become, became almost possessed by it. So I believe from time to time, Satan, who's not omnipresent, will say, this ruler I'm going to, has given himself over to me and I'm going to use him as a puppet to do some incredibly destructive stuff. But it's these big time rulers. So people will say to me, or you know, they claim I'm possessed by Satan. I say, no, you're not that important. Only important people get that, like the king of Tyre. You got other problems. But I think from time to time, like Tyre, this guy who thought he was a god, all these kind of things, he was actually being inspired by Satan himself. Judas was another one. We know that for sure, because Luke 22.3 tells us this, that Satan entered into Judas before he betrays Jesus. So from time to time, there's these points. Tyre is one of them. He's one that is consumed. The message of these chapters is simple. Do not rejoice in wrongdoing. Do not be gleeful over somebody's misfortune. That's the lesson here. Chapters 29 through 32, we get Egypt. What's Egypt's issue? Look at verse one of chapter 29. In the 10th year, in the 10th month, on the 12th day of the month, like I said, he is just OCD on dates. He loves it. The word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says Yahweh God. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of the streams and says, my Nile is my own. I made it myself. <laughs> really? Did you dig it last night? <laughs> Pharaohs for centuries believed they were divine. We're God. We are the descendants of Ra, the sun God. We're God. This guy takes it another level because they did not believe Ra was the creator God. This guy says, I'm actually the creator God. I made the Nile. I dug it out last night, whatever. So God here at this point is like, mm, I don't think so. Pharaoh, be careful. You think you're great, but in actuality, you were just born into that position. I look at this and I always think to myself, I have to be very careful because there can creep into my mind the same idea that I like made myself. Well, it was my hard work or this thing or that thing. I dug it myself. I did it myself. This same attitude can creep into many of us. It's kind of the conservative mindset. Pull yourself up by your bootstrap, get with it, do it. And there's a part to that. But there's also, man, we've been born at the right time in the right place where you can have the opportunity to do things with your life. I read this book that detailed like these great men and take a look at Bill Gates. Was, was Bill Gates this great dude, period? Or was Bill Gates at the right place at the right time that gave him access to something that no one else did? Well, that's what happened to him. He lived in Seattle, a suburb. Seattle had this 
this computer lab that they were letting people come in and use. His parents were wealthy enough that they could get him there. So he, at like 13 and 14, is able to play on computers in the 70s when no one else is. So he was at the right place at the right time. Yeah, he worked at it. Yes, he partnered, no doubt about it. But what if Bill Gates was born in the 13th century? Right? He's either really good at the abacus or he's a very frustrated nerd. One of those two things is going to happen to him. It's the right place at the right time. Pharaoh, you think you're great. You think you've done these things. You were just born at the right time. So God says this, verse 9. Because you said, the Nile is mine and I made it. Therefore, behold, I am against you and against your streams. And I'll make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation. God says, no more. No more. You think you're the creator? You think you're the sustainer of these things? I'm going to send you a message. So what's the problem, number two, of Egypt? It's pride, is it not? Peter says this, 1 Peter 5. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, here's the command, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. My job, when I realize that, I want God's grace, not his resistance. Then I need to humble myself. I just look over my life and I think about how many times I've really made mistakes and almost all of them boil down to pride. You know my airplane story, where I try to open a door, I try to push a door that was an open door, and I told people, hey, relax, I'm an engineer, I design these things. And then I'm trying to bang this door open, and the waitress, or the stewardess comes over and is like, stop it, and she just pulls it open. Moron, right? I can go on and on. And it's almost always, hey, look at me, and then look out. God says, oh yeah, I'll show you. I'm gonna resist you in this moment, right? So chapter 30 is a song for Egypt. It's a very sad song. Verse 12, I will dry up the Nile and will sell the land in the hand of evildoers. I'll bring desolation upon the land and everything in it by the hand of foreigners. I, Yahweh, I have spoken. Thus says Yahweh God, I will destroy the idols and put an end to the images in Memphis. There shall no longer be a prince from the land of Egypt, so I will put fear in the land of Egypt. It just goes on with a song. Chapter 31, Egypt is compared to Assyria. In the 11th year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was, past tense, a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height, its top among the clouds. So here's what God's going to do. God says to Egypt, remember Assyria? 200 years before this, Assyria was the power nation in the world. But at this point, they're nothing. They're gone. In fact, to this day, have you ever met an Assyrian? No, they're just, they've disappeared completely. So they were this great, amazing tree, but then they're gone. God's saying to Egypt, learn the lesson of history. Learn the lesson of history. So verse 18 puts it like this. Whom are you thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the world below. You shall lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude declares Yahweh God. Learn the lesson of history. You might think you're great and you're untouchable. So did the Assyrians just a couple generations ago and they're gone completely now. The one thing it's been said we learn from history is we don't. You look at the rise of nations and the fall of nations and empires, man, it's just been on a cycle as long as you can go back. I think for me personally, I try to read a number of biographies every single year so that I can learn. And this is what I do to try to not be those that don't learn. I pray, Jesus, either make me like this example or Jesus, prevent me from becoming like this example. 
read biographies, and then pray. God, help me. I can see these same tendencies prevent me from becoming like that. Or, wow, you did awesome. Make me like that. Learn from history. Egypt didn't, and they're going down. Chapter 32, verse 1, last chapter. In the 12th year, in the 12th month, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You do not want someone to sing a lamentation to you. It's an obituary. You don't want people singing an obituary to you. <laughs> I love what one guy said when he was asked, like, hey, what do you want people to say at your funeral? He said, look, he's moving. <laughs> That's what I want to hear too. This is an obituary. Egypt is not going to move. And the whole obituary is this. They're going to go down into this pit where all these other great empires have gone as well. That's this entire chapter. I'll read a little bit of it, and then we'll talk real briefly. Verse 3. Thus says Yahweh God, I will throw my net over you with a host of many peoples, and they will haul you up in my dragnet, and I'll cast you on the ground. On the open field, I will fling you and will cause all the birds of heaven to settle on you. And I will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. I will strew your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood and the ravines will be foul of you. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you. I will put darkness on your land, declares Yahweh God. Verse 12. They shall bring to ruin the pride of Egypt, and all its multitudes shall perish. Verse 20. They shall fall amid those who are slain by the sword. Egypt is delivered to the sword. Drag her away and all her multitudes. Verse 22. Assyria is there and all her company. Verse 24. Elam is there and all her multitude. Verse 28. Meshach and Tubal is there and all her multitude. Verse 29. Edom is there, her kings and all her princes. Verse 30, the princes of the north are there, all of them, all of the Sidonians who have gone down in shame with the slain for all the terror that they've caused by their might. They lie uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. Verse 31, when Pharaoh sees this, he will be comforted for all his multitude. Pharaoh and all his army slain by the sword declares Yahweh God, for I spread terror in the land of the living and he shall be laid to rest among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. Pharaoh and all his multitude declares Yahweh, God. By the way, this is the end of the really hard section of Ezekiel. We're at the pit now, the very bottom. The only place is up. So from here on out, Ezekiel finally lets some light in. That's the good news. So here's my question. Why does God devote a pretty lengthy section of this book to saying, Here's the punishment that's going to happen to these seven nations that are around Israel. Why does God do that? Here's why. There's one reason. I believe. To prevent revenge. So imagine for a second. Jerusalem is attacked by Nebuchadnezzar. It's being smashed and destroyed. You get your kids together. You get your wife together. You have a secret exit. You get out. You're about ready to make it. All of a sudden, the Edomites grab you up, tie you together, and then turn you over to Nebuchadnezzar. And you end up living as a refugee outside of Babylon next to a sewage canal. What would you do? Man, you would be plotting how you're going to get back at the Edomites. You'd be telling your kids, you get back at them. You take care of this. Can you believe what they did? You'd spread that in, through the entire refugee camp. That same thing happens every day today. You know that? Every refugee camp, that happens. Look what those people did to us. We're going to go back and get vengeance on them. That happens every day in the world. So God, here's what God's doing. God's saying, hold on. You're not going to do, do that. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay these nations. I'll take them out. I'll deal with them. You are not to do that. 
This entire section is saying and talking about the justice of God. Trust me, Israel. Trust me. I'll make this right. I know what they've done. I saw it. I saw how they did that to you. Trust me, Israel. I'll get vengeance on them. Do you know how important it is to tell people about the justice of God? When a woman is raped, her child is molested, do you know how important it is to tell them about the justice of God? It's just as important as his love. You can trust him. Vengeance is his, he'll repay. You can turn this over to him. There's a guy that I love to read, his name is Miroslav Volf. He is a professor at Harvard and a Christian. And he survived the ethnic cleansings of Slobodan Milosevic in the 1990s, brutal. And he writes a lot about that and, and kind of how he processed through that. And this is what he said, it's fascinating. He says this, he says, um, the violence there was fueled not by a belief in divine judgment, but the lack of it. Because Slobodan Milosevic was a communist, he was an atheist. So it was an atheistic regime who said, it doesn't matter what we do here, because we all die, and one day the sun goes out, and it doesn't matter what we've done. So he says this, the understanding of divine judgment leads to less violence. When you know there is a God who can take vengeance for you, that you don't have to do it, then you prevent more violence. So he gives this scenario that happened to him when he lived there. These young men would come to him whose families had been butchered and raped and murdered, and they wanted vengeance. And he said, how would you talk a young man out of getting vengeance on people that he just witnessed cutting up his family? Do you say to that young man, violence never solved anything? No way. That kid's going to say, oh yeah, they poked out one of my eyes, I'm poking out two of their eyes. They killed my sister, I'm killing two of theirs. He says, no way. The only way that he found that ever worked was to tell them there is a God who sees and you can trust that God. He will judge and make this right. It was the only way he ever talked young men out of getting vengeance. God sees and he will bring justice. You can trust him. That's what God's doing right here to Israel. Don't go back to the land when I set you free. In 70 years, when this captivity is over, don't return to the land looking for vengeance on your neighbors. That's my job. I'll take care of it. The New Testament calls us another step further. Not just not to get vengeance. The New Testament says, you forgive. You take the next step. And if you struggle with forgiveness, can I recommend an article for you in The Atlantic? It's called The Forgiveness Boost. And it's written by a professor. His name is Everett Worthington. And he tells a bit of his story in this article where he says, listen, I had great struggles with forgiveness. That's why I actually did this research. Because his 78-year-old mom was murdered and worse in her home. His brother came in, found the body, saw what had happened, he was so traumatized by that, he later committed suicide. And Professor Worthington said, I, I'm not a naturally forgiving person. He said, in school, a professor gave me a B, and he said, it took me 10 years and a religious experience just to forgive that professor for a B. So we started looking into forgiveness, like how do you do this? Because I have this traumatic event that I can feel already is affecting me. And here's what he found. He found this, forgiving people have better health, use less medication, sleep better. They struggle, they have fewer struggles with fatigue, have fewer medical complaints. Marriages that ex express forgiveness really well, this is what he found. The people in those marriages have lower blood pressure, a lower heart rate, reduced tension in their facial muscles. Guess what that means? Less wrinkles. So even if you can't find it in your heart to forgive, let your vanity take over. Like, I don't want to have wrinkles, all right? It's just so funny to me. And then he started doing these tests. And, and what he found was unforgiveness releases the hormone cortisol. It's a stress hormone. And it just starts to, it reduces your brain size. You're not as smart. Your sex drive and your digestive ability. 
And he took these people and he kind of gave them all these tests to figure out, are you a forgiver or an unforgiver? And they started giving them just physical tests. A couple of them are this. Number one, it was, hey, I want you to walk up this hill and down. And then they would measure like how hard it was for them to walk up the hill and down. Unforgiving people found that test much harder than forgiving people. The other one was this, jumping. Just how high can you jump? On average, forgiving people can jump seven centimeters higher than unforgiving people. Like if I would have known that, I would have been able to dunk a basketball in my teens. You know how much seven centimeters? It's almost three inches. It's like forgiveness weights you down and just destroys you. That God's commands are not grievous. It's not God trying to take something from you. It's God saying, I'm trying to set you free. I'm trying to set you free from this weight. Unforgiveness, what it will do to you. We're right ahead in the new year. Don't bring baggage from 2016 or 2015 or 2005 or whatever. Don't bring the baggage in the next year. Forgive. Be set free. But man, I struggle with that. I really struggle with it. It's hard. I, I, I think I've forgiven, but then I can't forgive. It comes back up. I, I'm a lot like Edom. It can be 1,500 years of it. They lied to me way back then. They stole the blessing from me. I can be like that. So what do I do? There's a story that I think is really amazing. It happened back the 2nd of October, 2006. Very, very heartbreaking story. It was at the West Nickel Schoolhouse. Remember that story? Where a man went into that Amish school, barricaded himself in there, did all kinds of evil stuff to the girls, killed five of them, and then shot himself. Remember that? And the Amish community responded in a way that I found just phenomenal. They immediately went to the wife and said, hey, we don't hold this against you. How can we help you? What can we do for you? And then the police did their business in the schoolhouse. Once the police were done, this is what the Amish did. They hired an excavator and a dump truck. Now, the Amish don't use excavators and dump trucks, but this is what they want to do. They want to completely remove that schoolhouse. They want to make no memory, no anything that reminded them of what had happened. So they hired an excavator to come and crush that schoolhouse, put it into dump trucks and take it away. And now if you go there, it's just a grass field. There's nothing. They knew this. If we leave something there, it will be a reminder that, that always brings us back to, oh, our teeth will be set on edge by that. And they knew this, we can't do it ourselves. We need outside help. We need an excavator that's more powerful than us to just dig this thing up and take it away right away. So they got an excavator and there's no memory of it. I think some of us, sometimes we need an outside excavator because bitterness gets so deep into us. There's so much hurt and so much pain with us that it's really hard to forgive. But the good news is, I think we've been given outside help. And that's why you have communion today. Because this is the outside excavator. So I want you to take a moment. I want you to really think deeply Is there somebody that's hurt me that I'm still allowing them to hurt me? It's like a boomerang, right? You think you're getting them, it just keeps hitting you, keeps hurting you. Forgiveness is for us. That's what Dr. Worthington found out. Man, it sets you free. You can climb hills, you can jump higher, you've got better heart rate, everything works better if you forgive. I want you to think for just a moment, and then we're gonna pray together, and I want you to say, as you pray, Jesus, I need you to excavate this thing. I don't want this hurting me anymore. I don't wanna remember this anymore. I want a green field where that memory is. Change me, cleanse me, purify me. Do the work that only you can do. And so Jesus, I thank you that you did not leave us helpless. 
You didn't command us to forgive. You demonstrated what that looks like. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So we pray this day, Lord, if there are people, maybe a parent, maybe an ex, maybe a child that has hurt us, maybe a coworker, maybe a pastor that's hurt us in some way. And we have held on to that hurt, letting it define us and defile us because that's what it does. I pray, Lord, that that root of bitterness would this night be pulled up and excavated by your power. And so we give you, we give you the right to move and to change and to pull and to tug and to free us from these things. And so take a moment and whisper your prayer to Jesus. And so we eat strength. We eat of you. We eat of power. We eat of resurrection. We eat of new beginnings. We eat of reconciliation and redemption. That what Satan meant for evil, you can turn to good. We eat that now. Let's eat together. And we drink of forgiveness. That you have forgiven us. That though our sins were like scarlet, they have been made white as snow. That while we are yet sinners, you demonstrated your love for us, that Christ died for us. We drink forgiveness, Lord. And we extend that same forgiveness to those that have sinned against us. Let's drink forgiveness. So Jesus, I pray you would go with us and cleanse us. And then in 2017, we could climb mountains and leap for joy. Bless us, go with us. We pray this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.